I have often brought up football, and I know that not everybody is a football fan, but I have found out from my wife, who is not a football fan, that evidently there are some new football fans, new people following, especially the Kansas City Chiefs, because of their newest, most famous fan, who evidently is dating one of the players. And so I will, uh, I'll take this moment to quote Taylor Swift's favorite quarterback. Something that he said here uh, a few weeks back I thought was noteworthy. He said that the reason they won their game was because they went back to basics, going back to the fundamentals. That was the key to their victory. And that's something coaches and players talk about a lot, but it's kind of the basis of so many different things that we try to be successful at, right? Fundamentals are what makes you good at golf or at playing the guitar or at business or at baking or whatever. You need to know the fundamentals. You, you not only start with them, but you keep going back to them and making sure that you return to, to the basics in order to make sure that you have a solid foundation. And so this morning we want to look at six elementary principles to give us a solid foundation. And you ever think it would be nice if the Bible gave us an inspired list of what are the foundation, the, the elementary principles, the basics. What are the basics that we should keep going back to? And in fact, the Bible does give us such a list. Not that it's comprehensive about everything that's foundational, but the Hebrew writer tells us in Hebrews 6 about these different truths that we need to be aware of. And in context, the Hebrew writer rebukes this group of longtime Christians for not being ready for more difficult issues. If you want to grow, you have to go back to basics without getting stuck on the basics. We want to secure the foundation and then building on it. So this lesson is for beginners. It's intended to be an instructive lesson. A lot of teaching. I encourage you to open your Bibles, think about these things, consider these things. I summarized the lesson in the article on the, on the bulletin if you want to look at these passages later. But of course, it's also for us, for all of us, as we try to go on to maturity. Because, because the whole idea of all of this is that in order to move on, we can't move on until we fully grasp the basis. And, and that's why the writer of Hebrews was so frustrated. He says, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation. And before we get into what each of these things are, let's just talk about this idea. What I'm trying to say, why is it so important? Whenever Michael went with us skiing, he didn't make it very far past the bunny slope. <laughs> and if he goes again, which I'm not sure he's going to, the goal will be for him to, to go on. You know, you don't want to stay at the bunny slope forever. But, sorry, I just looked out and saw you. I was going to make this skiing point anyways. <laughs> but, but whenever we go for the first time, we don't want to jump right to moguls and black diamonds, but we also don't want to stay at the beginnings forever. We want to keep moving forward constantly. 
And, and so we want to secure the foundation and make sure we have that solid. And I got to tell you, looking at some of these things and hearing some of the teachings that are out there about them, it doesn't, just because they're foundational, that's because they're the building blocks of what we need. It doesn't mean that everybody understands them perfectly. I would argue that a lot of people don't, and they're, they're easily misunderstood. So he talks about this foundation of repentance, repentance from dead works and a faith toward God. And then he goes on to talk about instructions about washings and laying on of hands. And then he concludes the list with the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. This is the list that this particular biblical writer outlines for us as we think about these things. So we want to get into each of these items and just make sure we have a solid grasp of what each of these things what each of these things means. So first, repentance from dead works. Repentance from dead works because these are works that lead to death, which is what sin leads to, according to James 1. But what is repentance? I think a lot of people think to repent means to just be sorry. Like, I kind of feel bad about that. That is not repentance. But there is a relationship between truly feeling sorry, feeling sorrow about our sin and repentance. But scripture makes it clear they are not the same thing. See, sorrow for sins leads to repentance. And so Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. When we understand what our sin is really, its effects, how God sees it, that this is what brought Jesus to the cross, then it makes us see our sin in the right way. And that leads to repentance. But what is repentance? Repentance is a turning. Look at Acts chapter 3, verse 19. Peter says, repent therefore and turn back. Turn back to who? Turn back to God. Turn towards the right way. Change your mind. Change your thinking. Change the way you're looking at it. It's a shift in the direction of the will. Sounds so simple. It's actually the hardest thing to do maybe in all the Bible is to make that decision. Because whenever you're going one particular way, it's because that's what you want to do. And to say, okay, I'm really going to, I'm really going to decide. I'm, I want to turn towards you, Lord. And I want to give up this, this way of being, this way of thinking, or this way of doing things. That is the shift in turning. It's an interchange. But that interchange must and should lead to an outer change, to a behavior change. And so, as was brought up in the class this morning, I think by James, the, the, um, John the Baptist says that repentance needs to produce the fruits of repentance. It needs to lead to a behavior change. And when people ask what they should do, he says, okay, here's what that would look like. You who are ripping people off, give back what you stole from them and, and stop doing it. You know, help people, don't hurt them. Make the change that is fit, fruit, meat for repentance. Make the life change. So sorrow, you see the three pieces. Sorrow leads to this turning, this change of thinking, this decision, 
which leads to a life change. And, and it doesn't mean you're going to instantly get it all right every time. It doesn't mean that if, you know, a week later you sin again, and it's the same thing you repented of, that, it wasn't, that you didn't really turn. You turned and you strove, and, and what do you need to do again? Well, we fall down and we get up and we turn to God and we say, Lord, forgive me. I can't believe I did this again, but I turn to you and your grace and your mercy, and I commit myself to this change. And, and we do, and we, and we do change, and life change comes from it. And there are a hundred testaments to that sitting in this in this room, that life change comes from this decision that comes from this shift of godly sorrow. But repentance is always inseparable from faith. True repentance comes from faith. And true faith leads to repentance. And so these two are grouped together. Repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. Faith towards God. What is that? Does that just mean I, I, kind of, I kind of think some of these things are true? Yeah, I'll buy it. I affirm some things. I, I know people, I have friends who say they can live however they want. They're saved because they believe that Jesus is God. But that is not the way the Bible talks about faith. The words for faith that are translated faith in both the Greek and the Hebrew have this idea of belief and of trust, confidence in a person, and of loyalty and faithfulness. They're often translated faithfulness, fidelity. They're two sides of a coin. You know, think about any relationship that is meaningful in your life. Think of, if you're married, think of your relationship with your spouse. What is, it, what is the foundation of that relationship? Well, hopefully you trust them and you are trustworthy and loyal to them. You, you can put faith in them and you are faithful to them. God is faithful and he has entrusted to us these opportunities and these responsibilities and these commandments. God is trustworthy. We can rely on him. And to have faith is to put our confidence and trust and belief in him and to be faithful to him. So the first, if we think of three dimensions of faith, the first dimension is spiritual perception. We see something different because of our faith than everybody else around us. We see what we don't see. We see what we can't see with our eyes, like, like Elisha's servant who could see with his eyes whenever he was given that promise to see the armies of God around, uh, around the city. Well, we see not with, not with our rods and cones and, and uh, visual receptors. We see because we choose to trust in the, in the word of God that is reliable. And therefore, when... Life has its ups and downs. When there's scary things in the news. When we aren't sure what tomorrow is going to bring because of problems in our own life. We see the hand of God with us, with his people. And we recognize God can see us through. I don't know what he will do. 
But I know he hears my prayers. I know he cares. I know he's able to act. I know he wants to bless me. I know that all things will work together for good to those that love the Lord. Whenever, because of our spiritual perception, whenever we're tempted and attacked in different ways, we see the hands of the forces of darkness because God has told them about us, us about them. And we recognize that Satan is the tempter and he is the evil one and he is after us. Whenever friends of ours die or we look towards our own death and our failing bodies, we see not an end, but as we'll talk about, a sleep. A time to be with the Lord and recognize that there is, there is something even better ahead. Spiritual perception is part of faith, but so is confident hope. Hebrew writer says a little later on, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. We have a different kind of posture towards everything that brings joy and confidence because of our faith, because we know the end of the story and we believe it. But there's also this dimension of covenant faithfulness you know, John's gospel associates believing in Jesus with receiving him. Right at the beginning in John chapter 1, in verse 12, you see that those who received him were those who believed in him. And, and the idea isn't just like receiving him in your heart like a feeling. The idea is receiving him as king. The message of John's gospel is Jesus is the son of God the king, the Christ. And those who believe that say, okay, I stand with him. Obviously, if he's the king and he's the victor and he's the son of God and I call him Lord, then I follow him as Lord. I put my confidence in him and I give my loyalty to him. And this, this idea throughout the scriptures, this pairing of faith and faithfulness just highlights the, the idea that there is a covenantal relational aspect to faith throughout the Bible. There is a solidness to the faith that comes as we go through our difficulties and as we choose to follow the Lord. As Joshua says, now, now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. A word that can also be translated faith in, in the Hebrew. Covenant faithfulness. Covenant meaning we are in a bond with God as his people. He our God. He is faithful and we will be faithful to him. But he also says, going on to the third point, of repentance from dead work and of faith towards God and instruction about washings. Now, this is an interesting translation about washings because the word is baptismos. The word is, or, or the plural of that, baptismon. It, there is this idea that there are multiple washings. And remember, Hebrews is looking back to the priests and to the old Levitical system over and over again. And so we read about washings in the Old Testament. Someone, if they had ceremonial uncleanness, or guilt, they would remove that by washing their whole body. 
Leviticus 17 and verse 16. And so he might be talking about distinguishing that washing from other wash, from the washing that they are told to do. We are all told to do in the New Testament, this different washing. A washing that brings transformation, as Paul says to the Corinthians, you were, um, he says that, the, that idolaters and the immoral and homosexuals and, and all these different uh, acts that people do, they will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And he says, such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified. We have a washing that we undergo. And that washing changes us. Such were some of you, but you're something else now. In Ephesians 5 and verse 26, talking about the church and how Christ takes care of the church like a, a bride, he says, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. By the washing of water... And it's the word of God that gives that, that power, that the reception of that word that gives that power, that, the, the washing that we receive. In Hebrews 10.22, he says that our bodies are washed, our hearts are sprinkled clean with the blood of Christ, and we are cleansed. So what is this washing of our bodies? What is the washing that we are supposed to do? And he talks about instructions about baptisms. Well, think of what Paul was told in Acts 22 and verse 16. Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Baptism is a washing, not a physical, not about our flesh, not about taking a bath. 1 Peter 3.21 says, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the, from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Christ. Now there is only one baptism. There is only one washing. As Ephesians 4 verse 5 says, there is one Lord, there is one faith, there is one baptism. That one baptism is immersion in water for the forgiveness of sins. To wash away our sins, as Paul said there. Fourth, he talks about the laying on of hands. This might be a little less familiar because, because we don't practice that in the same way the apostles did, certainly, right? Is this about healing people? Is this about ordaining ministers? What is this about? There are tons of different purposes for the laying on of hands in the Bible. The unifying theme is that when you put hands on someone, you are demonstrating that they are the focus of this ritual. And that could be all kinds of different purposes. For instance, whenever someone was laying hands on an animal before they sacrificed it, they were saying, this is representative. Whenever someone was accusing a blasphemer, under the old law. They had to lay hands on them and say, this is the person. And you're 
with all of the solemnity that laying on hands takes on, you're saying, this is the person I am accusing. I recognize that they're about to be stoned because of this. Jesus would bless people, blessed the children. Remember that people came up by laying hands on them and saying a blessing over them, a, a prayer for, for their good. He would also sometimes, not always, sometimes he would heal with that. Sometimes it would represent, it would say that this person represents us. Kind of like the sacrifice represents people. The people put, the Israelites put their hands on the Levites and on the priests and said they're our representatives before God. In the same way that in Acts 13, the church at Antioch put their hands on Paul and Barnabas and said, these are our represent, we are partners in this mission to the Gentiles. And they all put their hands on them and said, you know, we're with you. So there's, and we could probably go on, there's a lot of different purposes for laying on hands, but the most prominent New Testament use is the apostles bestowing special gifts of the Holy Spirit. They would lay hands on someone, and this often happens right after, right after a baptism. As, for instance, in Acts chapter 19, Paul comes and he baptizes some men that knew about the baptism of John but didn't know about Jesus. And then he lays hands on them. And the baptism saves them. But after he lays hands on them, they begin speaking in prophecies and tongues. They're given a special gift of the Holy Spirit that they didn't receive before that. In Acts chapter 2, of course, the Holy Spirit comes down in power on the day of Pentecost. And we see all kinds of things happening and then we see many signs and wonders regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. We don't read about other people doing miracles in that period until we read about the appointing of seven men for a special purpose in Acts 6 and verse 6. And the apostles prayed over them and laid hands on them. And then soon after that, in verse 8, we read about Stephen, one of the seven, doing miracles. And soon after that, in chapter 8, we read about Philip doing miracles up in Samaria as he's preaching. But Philip can't put his hands on other people, lay hands on them, and give them that gift of the Spirit. Even though he has received this gift from the laying on of the apostles' hands. It says, after, this is after in Samaria, people had been baptized they had received the gospel at Philip's teaching, but it said the Spirit had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus in Acts 8 and verse 16. So hearing about that, the apostles send, and we talked about this, someone brought this up in our class this morning, send Peter and John up to Samaria. Says, then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, there was a magician named Simon that sees all of this, and he starts thinking, now, I, I know how to do some tricks, some magic tricks, but this is real power. To be able to give these abilities by the laying on of hands. So it says, now, when Simon saw the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I may lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. And of course, 
Peter said, your money perish with you. Repent. He had, Simon, by the way, was a Christian. He had been baptized for the remission of his sins. But he needed to repent because he had had this wrong attitude. This is not the, the gift of, this is the gift of God. This is not something that you buy. I mentioned earlier, Paul also, who was an apostle, had this power to lay hands on people. He did this also with Timothy. Uh, fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. And so we, we see throughout scripture, this is an ability that we only find apostles having, passing on this gift. It, we do find it in the Old Testament also, before the apostles came. Moses laid his hands on Joshua and filled him with the Spirit. But this is something that the apostles were given this power from Jesus to, to pass on this gift. And of course, we don't have apostles today. We talked this morning in our class about some of the requirements of an apostle that you know, none of us walked with Jesus from the, from the baptism of John. None of us saw with our eyes the, the resurrection. None of us were selected by Jesus to be one of the 12. We still follow the Lord. We still trust in these promises and find faith and encouragement from these things. We're not going to lay hands on people in the same way. But it's important for us to understand what the Bible is teaching us still today in, in these teachings about the laying on of hands. Then he says, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. The resurrection of the dead. Resurrection, this word means to bring life back to a mortal body, to bring it back to life. What a crazy idea, and yet this is what Christians believe. In fact, this is the foundation of our faith, is that Jesus rose from the dead. And the foundation of our hope is that we will too. We talk a lot about dying and going to heaven. I mean, that's something that comes up a lot, because that is a pretty special thing about being a Christian also. But that is not resurrection. That is not resurrection. Paul says in Philippians 1, whether you know, it would be better to die and be with the Lord than to stay here and serve, that's a good thing. But when he talked about his hope, he looked forward in the, a couple chapters later to something else. In Philippians chapter 3, in the last couple verses there, he talked about what he is pressing on towards. He says... Um, that we're waiting for a Savior, the Lord Jesus, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. I think some people think of it like forever, we're just going to be floating around bodiless spirits. And, and Paul says, he talks about this body that we have as a tent because it's fallen apart. It's temporary. But he says the idea is not that we're going to be unclothed, have no, no body, but we want something like a house that's going to last forever. For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal, this stuff, <laughs> may be swallowed up by life. Jesus said that all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. 
This word for the tombs, that's not the word for Hades. This is, this is the same word Jesus used when he talked about uh, the Pharisees as whitewashed tombs, or the same word that's used in Matthew 27 whenever people came out of the tombs at Jesus' death for a brief period of time and walked around and met their families. People who had died came out of the tombs and walked around. They were resurrected, and, and that's this word. All who are in the tombs will come out, and hear his voice, and come out. He expounds on this, all who are in the tombs, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now, premillennialists want to separate this into two different resurrections, one before a thousand years, one after, you know, there's a whole, a whole complicated um, system that they have worked out. But Jesus says, no, this is one resurrection, and he tells us when it's going to happen, on the last day. There is a day, the last day, when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, whether you're good or evil, and your fate will be determined then, at that time. We were studying recently in, Mark, in the Mark class, in Mark 5, about uh, Jairus' daughter. And Jesus says to her, to Jairus, she's, she's not dead, she's only asleep. And of course, everybody started laughing at him. I mean, it's a weird time to laugh. People are mourning the death of a child, but they start laughing. And then Jesus raises her from the dead. Now, was she really just sleeping? Well, no, Jesus is saying something about death. He can wake her up, so she's just sleeping. And then when Paul talks about those who have died in Christ, in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 14, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep because they're going to raise again. We will rise when Christ returns, as the next two verses go on to say. He will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are, if Jesus comes today, we who are alive will, come, will, will join them. Join all of the dead in Christ who have risen Jesus was the first fruits, the first fruits being an Old Testament idea of offering the first of a crop. Jesus was the first of this crop, meaning there are many more who will raise. Jesus rose and his body was changed. You can read about the weird traits of his body, of his immortal body as he came down on earth, as you read the resurrection accounts. But they, it could be touched, but it can also be in heaven. It can also be at the right hand of God, and it is immortal, and is glorious, and powerful. And Christ, at the end, will destroy every enemy, the last being death. He will destroy it, he will end it, he will hand the kingdom, deliver the kingdom over to the Father, and we will receive a body like his. Paul says, when people are asking, yeah, but what kind of body is it? Like, that doesn't seem to make sense. And don't you have like a million questions when you think about this idea? Yeah, but, but what if you were cremated? Yeah, but what if you were, you know, there's all these different, you know, this, this body, 
What's the body going to look like? And Paul says, there are all different kinds of bodies. And he gives all these examples of heavenly bodies and different kinds of bodies. And he says, you know, you foolish person, what you sow doesn't come to life until it dies. What you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel. That is the beginning. It's not going to be like that. It'll be changed. Not everyone will die. Jesus will come again when some people are still alive. But everyone will be changed. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in the last day, in the twinkling of an eye. And that will be when that judgment comes, that separation. You think of eternal judgment. There was a story that I read when I was in high school by Jonathan Edwards, a sermon. And man, it scared me to death. Did you ever have to read that? You know, the great Puritan preacher talks about like, you're like a spider hanging from a, from a web and sinners in the hands of an angry God, you're about to be destroyed. And that is part of the, the picture of judgment is the wrath of God. But that is not the whole picture. And we need to have a rounded sense of what judgment means in the Bible. It is a reason to rejoice for Christians because through and throughout the scriptures we see this idea of God's judgment is a relief at last the righteous king makes a ruling and brings justice takes care of the oppressed takes care of the one who was serving him and mistreated and elevates that person and tears down these structures of power and the people who lift themselves up and those who uh, f uh, are serving the wrong things and those who are, you know, destructive. And those who oppose God and oppose holiness and oppose righteousness. God is going to make it right. Finally. No more looking at the world and feeling like everything is bent. It is a reason to rejoice. But it is also a reason to fear. There's a reason to fear for those who afflict God's people, and it is a reason to fear for those who do not obey the gospel. As Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 1, 6-9, God considers it just to repay those who afflict you when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel, eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord, and from the glory of his might. It's a reason to serve this coming judgment. Jesus says, I'm going to go to the people, those on my left and those on my right, and I'm going to say, hey, um, blessed are you because whenever I was in need, you took care of me. When I was in prison, you came and visited me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. And they'll say, when do we do that? And he'll say, when you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. And that's the separation he will make between sheep and goats, as he describes it in Matthew 25. It's a reason to speak. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 10 to 11, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Everybody's going to get, get a, a judgment based on what they did. 
including, by the way, your repentance, which is, which is the way we access the grace and mercy of the Lord, by turning to the Lord in those ways we talked about at the beginning. But therefore, he says, knowing the fear of the Lord, knowing the fierceness of that day, we persuade men. Knowing that that day is coming, that day is not only coming for me, it's coming for my coworker. That day is not only coming for me, it's coming for my English teacher and for my sister and for my, you know, my best friend that I haven't talked to for a while. That day is coming for all of us, and therefore we try to share the gospel and bring this persuasive word as we reason with them about the good news of Jesus. So repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change in our actions, turning from sin to God because we grieve our sins. Jesus says, I came to call sinners to repentance. Faith is our trust and loyalty toward God that lets us see beyond this realm and live in confident anticipation of God's promised future. And our sins are washed away as we call on the name of the Lord through immersion in water. And the apostles use this practice of laying on hands to bestow special gifts of the Spirit, like prophecy and speaking in tongues. And the word has been confirmed by those signs. And on the last day, all the dead will be raised and our bodies will be changed into incorruptible bodies. Christ will judge the living and the dead, granting his saints eternal life and bringing eternal destruction on those who do not obey the gospel. So, are you ready? Are you washed, as we sometimes sing, in the blood of the Lamb? Have you been washed, washing away your sins, coming to Christ in loyalty and trust, and repenting of your sins.